Hi, and welcome to the Future Champions podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Taylor, and this is part three of our interview with Ron Smith. The last two parts have been fantastic, and if you haven't seen them, I encourage you to go back. In part two, Ron and Martin Doherty had a conversation with a young footballer, Henry Brophy, and talked about his aspirations in relation to his football. If you haven't watched it, go back and have a listen. In part three, Ron and Martin start their conversation about the 11 principles of football as released by the FFA this month. If you haven't seen them, you can jump on and look on the FFA website. But they can be broken down into three parts. Basically, how people see the game, how they play the game, and how the game is managed. So here it is, our interview with Ron Smith. Martin, did you have another question before Henry came in or...? No, I was. I, I just um, based on the principles, um, the eleven principles that I was looking at previous to coming on, and I, and I don't want to throw you on the spot here, Ron. Is is the one principle that's more important than the other? Do you believe, or or is there a principle missing from the eleven principles? There's one thing. There's one thing, and this I'd, I'd like maybe both of your opinions on this. I'm not sure about a plain identity or a plain style. Yeah. And the reason I say this is that there are certain nations around the world that people associate with, you know, and let's take the Germans, for example. Everyone that I know thinks about Germans as being highly organised, very disciplined. Robotic-like. Methodical in the way they do things um, and so on. And so maybe that's how they play football. (laughs) I say maybe, because it's not all Germans. There's a lot of foreigners come into the mix. Yeah. Put that in Australia's perspective. We're a country made up of people from every footballing nation in the world, almost. I, I, would, I would say that's probably a fair, fair reflection. So what's our style going to be? Well, I don't know. Um, and does style, is it really that important? Um, it, I think a lot, and the reason I say this is, oh, is it going to distort our thinking about what we look for in players? If you've got an, an end product in mind about the sorts of players that you want to see in a team and the behaviours or the, the type of player that you're looking for, you might ignore some other people who've got really good qualities, but they don't fit what you're looking for. You know, and so I'm, I'm, I'm one that says let, let playing style develop according to the players that we get. And let's not limit ourselves by trying to develop players who've only got certain qualities. Why not develop players with a whole range of qualities? Because I watch a lot of football and I say to myself, there are times in games where this team could do with somebody totally different. And I'll give you a, a quick example of what I'm talking about. Um, you watch Manchester City play, and they're fabulous at keeping the ball. They can hit you on the break. They can play through you, round you, through your legs. <laughs> they can do everything because they've got super gifted players. But they struggle sometimes because teams shut the spaces down and everything else. And I often wonder... How nice would it be if they had a big six foot four centre forward they could put in 
who could actually win balls in the air. May not score them all, but he could win aerial battles and then cause problems for the, the opposing team. But they don't have someone like that. And that's what I'm saying is, why haven't we had another Mark Baduka? And I think it's because we don't look for him. That's, that's me in a nutshell. Because there are plenty of lads out there that would have similar physical attributes to Mark. Maybe whether we've got the same technical level, I'd, I'd question. But what I'm saying is there are times when in a game it would be great if you could play a ball into a packed area and have a big guy keep it like Viduka used to. And don't tell me we couldn't train somebody to do that. So you're saying that at a young age we tend to select the same type of player, which then at the at the other side of it, we tend to have all the same types of players. Possibly, yes. So what I'm saying is why haven't we had another Viduka? Can I chime in there? Yeah. Can I chime in? Because Again, um, it's almost like uh, we're preaching from the same Bible there, Ron. Um, you go back to the, uh, the golden generation that's done this um, talk over the past, what, four months now. And what was their style leading up to 2006? What was Australia's style leading up to 2006? Can anybody put a rubber stamp on what it was? No. Well, we just had good players. That's my point. That is my point. So at what stage, at what stage did we decide that, oh, that's not good enough? We need, we need a style. And, and by that, what I'm saying, I'm going to be contradictory in what I say here because we actually did have a style and it was open and it was free and it was pick the right players at the right time at the right moment for certain situations. Yeah. Not pigeonholing not becoming predictable, like uh, you just said there, Stuart, about um, a six, like I, I'm coaching a little um, school team at the moment, deviating just a tiny bit, and I, I, I don't, I, I deliberately, when I take a team over, and I was doing trials, I deliberately don't get to know the names. It's a thing, it's a habit I've done forever. I don't want to know the names. I call them red boots, yellow socks, green hat, whatever. I don't want to know the names, okay? So, I put them in the position based on what I saw on the training practices that we did because I never asked them the positions. And we played our first game just last weekend and I put them in these positions and one of them's going, oh, I don't play that. I'm a CDM. Oh. And one, well, yeah, exactly. One was a CDM and one was a, a, a number seven and one was a number nine. And, and it's funny, just, just re reiterating what you're just saying there. I'm going, you're, 12 and you're 13 year old and you've already pigeonholed yourself into a position in the field that it's probably, um, you, you mentioned before about just playing for fun and yeah, we want them to play for fun, but you've already pigeonholed yourself at this age. Know what I mean, so where's that improvise that, that um, the principles of play, where's that improvisation is a player that I'm going to improvise, I'm going to be a goalkeeper, I'm going to be a striker, I'm going to be a winger. Martin, I think that's a great point. And this is why I think I, I'm, I'm not a fan of this idea of saying, uh, what, what qualities do we want from a right back? 
what qualities do we want from a centre-back? What qualities do we want for a, uh, a midfield player? And, and it's only in the last 10 years we've started giving people numbers. Yep. Okay, we used to talk about midfield players and strikers yep. and fullbacks. Now it's all, it's all numbers. You know, you're a number 10 or an 8 or a 6. Mm. Now, there's nothing wrong with that um, if it's part of your culture. But it hasn't been part of our culture for as long as football's played. And all of a sudden in 10 years, it has become the culture of football. Absolutely. Yeah. And like you say, I'm a six or an eight. I can give you some examples um, why it's important to become a good player. When Lucas Neal, when I brought Lucas Neal into the AIS, it was because of how he played as a left winger for New South Wales when he was 15 years of age. He played 92 games for Australia and played in the Premier League as a centre-back and a full-back. Early on in his career, when he first went to Millwall, he was a winger. He, had, he was such a good athlete, they played him as a centre midfield player because he could get up and down the park till the cows come home. And he was a good player on the ball. Yeah. Great athlete and so on. So then he started playing as a fullback in the first team inside like six or eight months of being at the club. And I had a conversation with, with Lucas at the Asia Cup in Qatar. We were sitting one morning having a coffee and he told me about how he how he got the opportunity to go to Blackburn Rovers. And it was an international week and he, he'd been up for a trial uh, because his, one of his coaches, Mick Harford, knew Graham soon as well and said, look, have a look at this lad. He's got a lot of potential and so on. And Lucas told me this story that during that week um, they were at training and the centre-back and right-back both collided and got badly injured. And Graham Souness said to him, get your agent up here tomorrow. You're playing in the first team on Saturday. Right? And it happened in like two days. Yeah. And Lucas said to me, that's when I knew I was never going to play as a winger again. <laughs> but up until that point, he, he was a winger. this desire to play as a winger because he was yeah. a Now, so what's the moral of this story? If you develop your dribbling skills, your passing and, and so on, if you're big enough and you're a good player, you can play anywhere. Yeah. Because he was big enough to play in the middle of the park as a centre-back, as a full-back. He was very two-footed. He played yeah. back and right back for the national team as well as in the centre. You know, and so having that ability and versatility, you get opportunities. You know, if I'm picking a squad as a coach and I say to myself, okay, who could we have? Oh, I'll tell you what, he could play there, there or there. You're in. I'll take them. Yeah. You know, because you give a coach adaptability. Yeah. You you're a good player. And yeah. You just adapt to where you're going to play in the team. Yeah. If you want to be a full time pro, as long as you get picked, you'll play anywhere. Yeah. And I agree with you. It's, yeah. can, can I just take it back? And, sorry, Stuart, just to jump in there. Just, just to jump in. So, coming all the way back to youth development, one. All the way back to youth development, do we pigeonhole too early? Well, uh, some probably do. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I wouldn't put everybody in the bracket, but um, the idea of looking at talent and saying, uh, "Well, he's only a number six, without considering would he be better off playing somewhere else?" Yeah. Um, now to do that, and years ago, Martin. Um, my attitude as a coach at the AIS and trying to prepare players to play for Australia was who are the best players? 
And so I say, right, we want as many of the best players on the field. So I would often say to players, look, we've got a glut of really good midfield players and your left foot's pretty good, but we're lacking in the left back spot. We've only got one natural lefty. How about you play there? I'll play you there and in midfield and you work on your left foot, try and get it as good as possible. And maybe a year from now, you might be starting in the Youth World Cup at left. Yeah. How does that sound? And I never had one player say to me, no, nah, I'm not interested. Yeah. I'll play in the middle of the park, I won't play. Yeah. I said, no, I'll, I want to be in the starting 11. I'll play anywhere. And the other thing is that there's been a number of people who started out and played in their teenage years in positions who finished up playing in professional football, even for the national team, totally different positions. Totally different, yeah, yeah. So that's why I say try and develop players' all-round abilities. And in doing that, there'll be some people who become very adaptable. But I wouldn't have put Viduka as a right back. (laughs) (laughs) People, but he's... Kiel was a left back. Yeah. He was a left back, played in the Joey's at left back. Yeah. I mean, I had him on my shopping list, but he, before he got into year 11, he'd left and gone to Leeds. But uh-huh. as they, they got Harry at Leeds, it was like, you're too good a dribbler, son. We'll play you higher up the park where you can. Higher up. Yeah. We can damage. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, so all those sorts of things. It's. Uh, yeah. Emerton was always a great wide player. He goes to Feyenoord, they play him at fullback. Amazing. And then Emo finishes up playing in both. He played for Blackburn and so on as a wide player. Played um, there also, but Gus used him everywhere. If ever there was a change, he'd even play him as a centre-back. If we were taking risks and throwing people forward, if it was going to go man on man at the back, he'd bring Emo them because nobody would overrun or outpower Emo. There you go. You know, so you see these qualities in players and you say, okay, he's really great, but he can play there, he can play there. Yeah. And you, in my mind, you just increase your opportunity to get a contract if you want to be a professional footballer. To be flexible and be adaptable as a player. Yeah. I think we should build that in. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I, I must have, you know, this idea that we've had for 10 years, you've got to play one system. Now. Nah. Has, has the one system, uh, other than the fact that it's generic now, has it created robotic coaches as well as players? Well, well I, I don't know. I mean, that's a big statement. But if you take the approach with players, if you take the same approach, if you all do the same thing and you're not given freedom, yeah, you're all going to be the same. Yeah. As a likelihood, an awful lot will be the same and the ones yeah. that are all will be the ones that are different. Yeah. Mm. Goes for players and coaches. Yeah. Yeah. The the thing I've learned sitting back on the outside looking in for the last 10 years is that I wouldn't force anybody to do anything or say there's only one way of doing something. Yeah. That is a grave mistake uh, to anything, and particularly in football. Uh, Sorry, sorry, Stuart, again. Ron, do you have any regrets about? not been inside over the past 10 years? Uh, well, it wasn't my decision. I've just been left out. <laughs> yeah. but, but there's been no way to get you uh, to come back in? or Because you, you obviously spoke there. <laughs> Sorry? 
nobody's asked. Oh. <laughs> I've been asked to contribute, really. I mean, I've sort of been on the on the outers. Um, so I've I've been trying to do my own thing. Um, I did my own research in football. So I I spent five years at university doing a PhD. Yeah. Um, but you know, again, I haven't been asked to share that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I still coach. I do lots of stuff. I've got a website. Yeah. The website to try and present different ideas to coaches that maybe they're not getting through the formal education programs. Yeah. All the stuff that's in there is basically the inf- the sort of the intel on what we what I did with players at the Institute of Sport and how we yeah. do. I uh, I often joke. I say I'm the only person who works full time in football but doesn't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the club. Yeah. <laughs> It's a big club, by the way. It's got lots of members. Martin, this is where we say goodbye to you. Um, is there anything you wanted to quickly say before we do? Oh, no, other than the fact, on the fact that thank you, Stuart, and obviously fantastic one, as always. Brilliant to, to listen to you, mate. You're an absolute, you're a, you're a star, you're a hero, and, and we really do need you in where you can influence. Um, but great to listen to you. Pleasure. Nice to okay. speak I wanted to quickly talk about the Nike Football Academy because it really did capture not just a nation, but it captured the entire world, the Nike Football Academy, and and you had some involvement in that. Can you explain what you did? Um, well, first of all, the, the the Nike chance was for players who'd never signed a contract. Okay, so in other words, people that may have been overlooked or missed out for some reason, for, you know, an opportunity. So Nike's idea was that across the world, in the countries where they sponsored either federations or clubs or national teams, they would would have this talent ID program where they would try and trial, let kids trial, to see if they could win a scholarship at the Nike Academy in England for a year. That was it. And out of that academy, they hoped that if the players were trained and put in, you know, on exhibition, so to speak, for clubs, that a number of them might sign professional contracts and get a career in the game. That was it. That was the the whole plan. And so um, we did it here. Nike were the sponsors of the national team. And so um, I was asked if I would be the chief scout and you know, sort of be responsible for selecting players. And so what we did, we had trials in most of the major cities. We actually had more trials in Queensland than any other state because we went up to Rockhampton, uh, Bundaberg and places, Cairns, um, uh, sorry, Townsville. We didn't go to Cairns, but if there were people were notified, we might have one or two lads from Cairns come down. Um, So they were... They invested a lot of money into this and we would go on these routes. And so I wasn't the only one. I had several coaches who travelled with me and we also had a programme like this in New Zealand. So we do this in all states. And then um, towards the end of the year, we would select a group between 20 and 30 players for a three-day camp to come to the AIS. And then we would make a final selection. Um, and, and in that camp at the AOS, uh, players from New Zealand came in 
and we would pick two players from Australia and one from New Zealand to go and be part of another trial that took place in, in England where 100 players from all over the world went into a, a final selection camp. Okay, so there were three from Oceania, went with another 97 from South America, Europe, Africa, you name it, Asia, all over the world, went to that camp. And then from that 100, eight players were selected for a 12-month scholarship at the Nike Academy. Okay, and that's, that's um, they didn't have trials in Canberra, but the Nike people said to me, if you know any young players in Canberra that you think have got a chance, <laughs> um, we'll fly them to Melbourne for a trial. And I said, well, there's only one player in my mind that I've seen who excites me and I think has got a chance, and that's a lad called Tom Rogic. And so I nominated Tommy and they flew Tommy down for a trial in, in Melbourne. And um, the other coaches down there, um, asked me and, you know, they said, have you got any good kids? I said, there's one. I'm not going to tell you his name or anything about him. I said, but he's going to come for a trial in Melbourne when we do, we have like, you know, three or four trials there. And uh, I'll never forget it. Um, the coach from New Zealand, um, Danny Hay, he, who played for Leeds United and, and the national team, the game had been going for about five minutes and he turned and he said to me, that's not the kid that you nominated, is it? <laughs> and I said, oh, it didn't take you long. <laughs> he said, what a player, you know. Um, so I knew I'd, I'd done the right thing in nominating Tommy. And, you know, the rest of it is history, as they say. He was one of the three players that was nominated to go to London. And out of that hundred, he was offered one of the eight scholarships at the Nike Academy. And, and so Tommy was there for about eight months. And in that time, he got lots of invites to go to Premier League clubs. But um, when clubs wanted to sign him, they, they realised that he, he couldn't get a work permit. And so, you know, it was um, like dream over. Uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't sign a contract in the UK. So he came back um, and prior to that, um, a year, in fact, or so, well, going back would have been 18 months before that. I've, I've always worked closely with Graham Arnold with the national team for 10 years and so on. And I rang Arnie and I said, um, I've got a lad here, Arnie. I said he's, uh, I'd sign him in a heartbeat if I had a club because I think he's got potential. And um, when, when he was going to go to London for that trial, there wasn't any football here because the season had finished in Canberra. And I rang Graham and I said, look, that kid I was telling you about, I said, can he come and train with you for six weeks before he goes to London for the trial? So Arnie said, yeah, of course he can. So anyway, we fixed it up and Tommy spent about six weeks training with Central Coast Mariners. And um, Arnie said, I'll offer him a contract now. He said, he doesn't have to, doesn't have to go to London. But Tommy go he wanted to experience you know that it was a big adventure for a you know and he was 17 years old um and uh I said no I said look you've got all your life to play if, if you don't get a career overseas at that time I said you can come back and, and play in the O-League 
um, you've got people that will be interested in you. <clears throat> but the thing was, <clears throat> you know, it's people take their time to develop. I often ask young players, what's your date of birth? <clears throat> Tommy was born on the 16th of December. Okay. And so when you start talking about representative football, he's a baby in, in his own year. When you start talking about Youth World Cups and national teams, he would have been one of the youngest if he'd been picked in a Joey's team. And to get in the youth team, he was given away two years on the oldest possible player in the youth age group. So you see a lot of talented players don't play representative football purely and simply because of when they're born. And if they're late developers, and, and Tommy was a big boy. He wasn't a little boy, he was a big boy, but he hadn't got a lot of strength to, to lug that big body around the field. A bit like Joe Simonich, you know, um, some years earlier. So I always knew that Tommy, if he was going to make a professional career, it would happen later rather than sooner. But he, you, you know, if, if you appreciate talent, Tommy had really good talent. Um, so, and I first saw him when he was about 10. And when you saw him at 10, did you know then that he had all the markings of a football great? No, but his first touch was really good. He was comfortable on the ball, which is a great sign because you can't teach touch. You can only develop it. And so when Grant, uh, Gerard Julio said to me one day, he said, Ronnie, people often ask me, what do I look for in players? And he said, for me, the first touch. Um, and for similar reasons. You know, he said, if you've got players with good touch, you know, they keep the ball well. Um, they've, they've got an ability. And it often shows someone who's probably spent a long time playing around with a ball on his own. Because I've yet to see anyone who can juggle a ball, who has a poor touch. And so once you say, yeah, but juggling, you don't juggle a ball in the game. No, you don't. But out of that, you develop feeling uh, and touch, as we call it, in inverted commas. Um, and I think that's important. And um, Gerard said to me, he said, well, you know, Arsene Wenger um, plays great importance on the physical side of the game. And I know that for a fact because I spoke to a, a scout who worked um, in Singapore uh, when I was over in that part of the world working. And he said, you know, um, he just assumes that they're good players and he wants to know, can they run and how quick are they? And how big are they? <laughs> mm. You know, again, and there's nothing wrong with that. What you want really is all of it. But you don't find that in too many players. So, but, you know, Tommy, so... <clears throat> He had his setbacks as a young player. He, he was told he wasn't good enough at the AIS after a three-month trial and they turfed him out of there. So uh, that was a big disappointment. Um, why they would do that, I don't know. It would never have happened in my day. Um, players, you, can, you could tell Tommy was always going to be a late developer, but he could do things that other players would dream of. And so you know he's got talent. Now, whether they survive people like that because of the physical qualities that are required, only time will tell. But in my book, I'd always, I'd always give a kid like that an opportunity. So um, there's different, difference of opinions. 
about decision making, about things that will influence a, a young player's career or potentially. Um, but Tommy had great you know, um, um, resilience is the word I'm looking for, you know. Um, and he had a he had a, a, um, a, a the coach who used to look after him. Um, John Mitchell was a was an actual ex player, but a psychologist as well. He was always trying to keep Tommy. Hey, you know, don't lose heart, don't give up, keep you know, keep practicing. And between the pair of us, he used to get me over every now and again to take some coaching sessions, and and that leads us into what we were talking about <clears throat> a little bit earlier. That's how I came to see Tommy when he was a 10-year-old. Um, John had had this group of players. I didn't know him at the time, but he was he was a good friend with a former AIS player of, that I had there, Andrew Young. And Andrew said, why don't we get Ronnie and come and have a look at these kids because we've got a fair bit of talent here. Um, what would he do with them? And so they, they asked me if I'd go and watch these kids train and so on. And I did, and I said, well... I would do exactly the same as I do with the 16 year olds we've got at the Institute. I teach them good behaviors and do it now. So you don't have to change behavior when you're 15 and 16. Don't let bad habits develop. Now there's opinion about what's good and bad. Um, so I introduced them to the idea of developing the habits and, um, that was it. And so, um, you know, they said to me, oh, the, the kids are like sponges, you know, they pick this stuff up, and so you kind of develop that. So that's how the association and seeing Tommy at a young age, and then <clears throat> you know between twelve and fourteen, he must have grown a foot. Um, and the next time, you know, I, I didn't see him for a little while, and the next time he was bigger than me. I go, well, Tommy, you know, you've been putting horse dung in your boots. <laughs> so uh, he sprouted enormously, and it's just and to see a kid like that. You know, go on. He missed out playing in the World Cup in Brazil because of injury. Um, that would have been the icing on the cake, you know. But Holger, Holger Osiek gave him um, opportunities to play in the national team, and that was terrific. Uh, that was that was a great um, part of getting Tommy in the international scene. You know, at, well, eighteen, nineteen years of age. You know, so it all happened very quickly for him as well. When did you see him and think, this kid has it? Well, <clears throat> from a technical perspective, from a young age, I thought myself, if he continues to develop, he's got very good technique. What you don't know at a young age is how they're going to develop physically, as I said earlier. That, that's when the teenage years become the important part and the training that you get and the advice that you get about physical development, about strength and conditioning, all that sort of, and that's why you need, you know, proper programs for kids that are really serious to develop um, because that can have a, a big impact and the sort of training that you do and the intensity of training and stuff like that. Um, technically you keep developing and you try then and how do you use that technique then? What's your tactical awareness like? You know, what's your strategic thinking during the game? What should you look for? Uh, and so on and so on. And how do you play? That doesn't mean to say that everything's regimented. With someone like Tommy, you know, he's liable to just give a drag back, nutmeg somebody and be off and cause chaos. That's great. You, you don't teach people that. 
you give them the freedom to do it. <laughs> do we give people the freedom to do it though? Particularly, um, do we as Australian coaches discourage uh, an identity in football? The danger at a young age, the danger at a young age is that people start talking about passing and get rid of it as if it's going to burn your foot. And I think that's sad because everyone has to go through a stage of, of learning to dribble where you have to learn to run with the ball first and then do it without looking at the ball so much. And then you avoid the enemy. You, you go around people. Then you learn to, you know, change direction quickly and sell people dummies. I'll start going that way and then I'll change this direction. Or you notice that the hips are not square on, so you go across the hips, as we say, you know, where someone can't turn. So you attack that, that side of them. All those things you can teach people. But the fundamental thing is, can you run with a ball and have you got good touch? If you haven't got that, it's much harder to do the other things. Um, and when you think about it, I, um, um, I try to keep things easy to understand and always have done for players and, and also for coaches. And the bottom line is that once you've got the ball, you can only pass it or run with it. They're the only two things you can do. So it's not rocket science. <laughs> it's so what's your, So can I pass it to someone five yards away? Can I pass it to someone 10 yards away? But where do I pass it to them? Do I pass it where they're going to have a fight for it? Or do I pass it to where they're going to have the advantage over a defender? You know, and so... This now comes back to awareness and decision-making and learning. I'm, you know, where I pass the ball, you can teach somebody. How you pass it, you can teach somebody. The touch to receive it, if you want your first touch to go away from the enemy, well, you need to know where the enemy is. And so that comes about your body positioning. So it's all linked, okay? And dribbling for youngsters, I love dribblers. I'd encourage, I'd, I'd teach dribbling, um, you know, as much as possible. And I think all players need to be competent to get out of trouble. Even centre-backs, you've got to be able to cope with a 1v1 confrontation because it's going to happen. That doesn't mean to say you finish up like Lionel Messi. It means that you're, you're not going to panic when you're in a 1v1 confrontation because you know what to do and how to keep yourself from losing the ball and move it away from danger basic part of playing the game. How do you feel when you go to, a say, a junior football game and you see a young nine-year-old boy or girl running down the sideline and they go to cut in and try and beat someone and then they get beaten and you hear the, the coach or the parent say, scream, you passed the ball, you should have passed the ball, and it makes that player feel less confident about taking those one-via-ones on. Does that bother you? Um, well... I think it's a natural reaction and also what people understand. You know, people don't, <clears throat> people are not like me. Um, they haven't had 40 years full time in the game trying to educate players and teach players how to do things and coaches and so on. So it, it's, it's a normal reaction. It's like saying, you know, pass it, um, get your head up. Well, you can tell people that till they're blue in the face. But if they can't get their head up, then they're not ready to pass it to someone else yet. It's like crawling before you walk. You wouldn't keep shouting at a baby, stand up. 
<laughs> if you did, they'd, they'd take you away in a white coat and say, you're an idiot. What are you doing? You know, he can't walk yet. He's got to go through stages. And it's no different with dribbling. But the only way you make progress, okay, is by going through those development stages. And the first one is to run with the ball. And we used to say, um, try, and, try and beat legs. Because when you're running, you're looking at the ball and you've got your head down. The first thing that you see when you get about four feet away from another player are a pair of legs. So we say, beat the legs, you know, go sideways. Simple as that. Don't run into them. And I've seen kids in junior games actually finish up running back towards their own goal beating people <laughs> because they've kind of gone in a circle because they've beaten one pair of legs, then another one, and they don't know where they're going, but they've just gone somewhere and they've, you know, they've gone round in a circle almost. But that's part of learning. So then you start doing it and, you, and there's lots of things you can do to actually you know, practice moving with a ball and then not looking at it. Um, one of the best players ever in my book was Ned Zelich. Ned could do things and run around a field and it was like he never looked at the ball. It was unbelievable. But I used to have a joke with him. I used to keep looking under his chin. He was taller than me. And I used to say, where's that other eye, Ned? You must have an eye under here. Because you never see him look down. He would be like this playing a game. And he could move the ball and do whatever he wanted. And it was like he never looked at the ball. He was just on another, another level. Um, so that was our little joke. But it's something, obviously, that he developed. It's a competency. So... Uh, You've just got to try and get more and more players to be able to try and get at that level through practice. So going back to Tom and his development, how did you feel as somebody who paid attention to him as a player who supported his pathway progression and it wasn't the normal pathway, I guess, when you see someone like Tom achieve his dreams? Actually one of the most rewarding things in life to see a young player achieve um, a level of professionalism in the game and to think that you might have played a small part in it. Because I think all coaches love to see people that they've coached have good careers. Now, you can have a great career and play locally, all right, if that's your level. And other players will go on to bigger and better things, play international football, uh, and be extremely successful. And you know how much that means to them because you were there when they were at a young age sharing the dream. I always used to say to the boys, you never know, lads, one day we might, you might play in a World Cup. And that was before we qualified, in long before 2006. In fact, that's what made 06 special. I can remember, I can remember that night we qualified against Uruguay like it was last week. Mm. And the, the reaction of so many of the players, because I reminded them, and they reminded me, amidst the champagne going off and everything else, do you remember? And I used to say, yes, I remember. <laughs> you always used to say, one day you might be playing in the World Cup. Well, it's here. It's happened. And that was just for me, you know, if I died and gone to heaven that night, I'd have gone a happy man. Let's put it that way. Ab absolutely. And you've taken your knowledge and an exceptional amount of knowledge 
and you've developed a program uh, um, in the uh, the football center, which is the footballcenter.com.au, where you actually break down the game into its most simplest forms. And whether you're a an Australian coach, a a, a a representative coach, or a community footballer, everyone can understand what you're talking about. Well, that that's the plan. Um, people often ask me about what's in it, and I say, well, it's about teaching behaviour, and it's 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 tried and trusted. Um, if you understand the approach about teaching basic behaviours to players. And I try and explain why these behaviours are desirable, um, like I do every day I'm working with players now. I still say, look, lads, you know, if you've got any questions that you don't understand yet, tell me and I'll try and answer them. But I try to show them the benefits of getting level and outside opponents, the benefits of knowing where opponents are as often as you possibly can. You, you may not be able to do it all the time, depending what happens in the game. So then you have other coping strategies. So when you can't do this, well, what do you do then? So what do you do when you get a ball play to you and you've got your back to go and you don't know where opponents are? Well, you protect it and move sideways. And the best way to protect it is to receive the ball with the inside of your feet and get your body where you think an opponent might be so that they don't have a bite at the ball. Um, and try and avoid running towards the ball when you're in front of it. All these little things actually make a big difference in the end if you train yourself and you believe in it and you say, well, that makes sense to me. It's a bit like teaching someone to cross the road. If you say, you know, look left, look right, look left, if it's all clear, then you go. You know, and you keep doing that because it makes sense and you want to stay alive. Well, it's no different in football. If you want to survive in the game, there are certain things that you can say, this makes sense. I'll train myself to do that. So in the end, you do it without thinking. You cross the road these days while you're listening to the radio, talking on the phone, drinking a coffee. Because it's trained behaviour. You don't think, oh, which way should I look first? You do it because you've done it so many times. And football is like any, any other behaviour. You train yourself to do it, it becomes a habit. And that's what I talk about, you know, the, the seven habits of highly effective players. <laughs> and can you, can you, rattle, can you um, say quickly what those seven habits are without you don't have to go into detail, but so people get an understanding of what habits you're talking about? Well, the... the there are, there are some with the ball and some without, okay? Um, so people talk about football as a decision-making game. So the more you can see most of the field and the players in it, the better the decisions ought to be that you make because you can see. So you have to train yourself. That's the number one thing I, I, I target with players off the ball is to keep getting where you can see the ball and your immediate opponent, okay, as often as you possibly can. Okay, I've, I've had players in the past running around saying, where's my marker, where's the ball? And whenever you say it, whether it's mentally or out loud, you look, there's my marker, there's the ball. And if you can't see both very easily, you're probably not in a very good position. So get where you can. Then you start getting about, can I get leveling outside my nearest opponent? So I know where he is and I've trained myself. Now there are a lot of times where I can try and get level with him, not past or this side, because if you're not level, your first touch doesn't go beyond him. And that's what you're aiming for. If you're a metre or two metres towards your goal, he can stop you from going forwards very easily. So we're now talking about a bit of detail. Now, you can't always do that either because of the angle of the pass. 
So then you either run forwards or you come back. Now, football's a forward-moving game. So you should always be thinking about, can I go forwards either by passing it or running to receive another pass? And so if you can't get in behind your marker, <clears throat> the next behaviour is to say, I'll come back to level with the ball. Because that then at least allows you to receive the ball facing forwards. And it challenges everything the defender's been taught about covering. Okay? But it's in simple language. If I can't get in behind my marker, come back level with the ball, but not towards it. Because that kills space. All right? So there's a kind of a, a building block of behaviour. And then when you start talking about what you do with it, well, your, your first touch, if you train the habit to be with the inside of the feet, there are enormous advantages in being able to face, keep, keep the ball central and square up to defenders. These are behaviours about receiving because then you can pass left and right and you can run left and right and defenders know that because you've got the ball between your feet and so they, they don't come too close. And if they do get within what I call tackling range, then you move with it. You either pass it or you run with it. And you're the one who says go. So then you, you keep possession and you, you don't lose it because you move it before they're, they're close enough to actually have a go at the ball. Okay? Um, protecting the ball. So if you're moving the ball and you know you've got opponents, screening techniques, you keep the ball, again, away from the enemy. That's a technique for keeping it out of tapping range. Um, and, um, you know, like passing the ball, well, obviously, if you know where people are and you know where your teammates are, then you should be able to work out where you need to go. So if you're under pressure, your first touch in terms of being able to keep the ball out of tapping range, keeping the ball moving, your first touch should go where you've got the advantage to get to the ball first and it's away from the opponent. Now, they're all simple concepts. And it's down to you then, can you train yourself to do it? And can you think? Now, you can't do them all at once, so you have to pick. So my starting point, because you spend most of the game without the ball, the first thing I usually start with in trying to teach players how to play football is to keep positioning where they can see who's marking them and the ball. Mm. That's yeah. my starting point. And, and then receiving, your receiving techniques. Well, I'm very aware that it's now <laughs> very late on a Friday night and you've given me so much of your time. Uh, can I, if, if, uh, is, for, can you quickly just tell me, is the, your website, is it something that players would get value out of as well or is it just for coaches? No, um, I've actually, by demand from some people, I've, I've actually put, I've modified some of the stuff, not all of it, because it didn't need modifying. But what I teach players, I teach coaches as well. So the website I initially started for coaches, but I've, I've actually tried to put a lot of the content in slightly modified forms or in, in the same form for players. And I've, I've put things in categories. So, yeah, it's there. If the players want to take control of their own development a little bit and practice the things that I've been talking about, um, I've got lots of examples in there of things that players can do to actually help themselves get better. And it's got nothing to do with systems of play. It doesn't matter whether you play a 4-3-3, 3-5-2, whatever. 
the behaviors um, apply in any system of play. And that's the beauty of it. It's something that you can control. So any time when you're playing in a practice, whether it's a small possession practice or it's a 5v5 game or 8v8 or whatever, you can start thinking about how you receive the ball. Where does your first touch go? Can I see who's marking me on the ball? And, and you notice that in all these things, I haven't said one don't. Mm. They're all action statements. They're things that are easy to understand and follow and do. So, yeah, don't have to interpret the language. <laughs> it's not like me saying, you know, you've got to try harder. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> what do I try harder at? Yeah. Uh, I often say to players, Stu, over the years, do you want to become a better player? And invariably, the ones I've worked with, not all of them, but the majority that I've worked with at the um, more advanced levels, they've all said, yeah. I'll... And then my next question is, well, what are you going to do then? And so then I, I want to hear some specifics, not I'm going to work harder. And if they say that, I say, you're going to work harder at what? What are you actually going to do? Because if you can't actually describe what you're going to do to become a better player, the odds are you won't. Because it's your, your kind of like you're not dealing with behavior. And the only thing you can affect is what you do. So if you can't put it into an action, a statement, I am going to improve my first touch, right? It won't happen. Mm. Question is when are you going to do it? Well, I can tell you, I've uh, been a massive fan of your your vision and your philosophy, and the 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 website is refreshing. Your views are refreshing. I've had the opportunity to hear you speak uh, before and watch you coach. Uh, you're very inspiring, and I love what you do for football. And I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me tonight. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Stu, and thanks. I'm I'm glad. Um, that you feel that way because that was my intention that it should be easy to understand and apply because that's been my motto working with players you've got to keep it so that, and i'm not saying that all players are stupid they're not but if you can use language that players understand easily they've got more chance of doing it thank you so much for joining us in the future champions podcast in this three-part series of the gospel according to ron smith it has been a fantastic journey for me personally to interview such an incredible mind and it's really encouraging to see that this week the ffa appointed ron smith as the technical consultant to the ffa ron congratulations it could not have happened to a better person all the best in your new appointment and thank you for everyone who took the time to listen or watch this future champions podcast the gospel according to ron smith